Hello, you're listening to Unsettling Trends on Midtown Radio. My name is Danielle DeVoe. Today, we are going to talk more about polarization, that unsettling trend of people feeling like they're so much further apart and can't really understand one another. I'm going to start with a conversation I had with a PhD student at the University of Waterloo in the Department of English Language and Literature. Kem Lauren Lubin specializes in computational rhetoric and in particular seeks to understand how algorithms and artificial intelligence are driving bias and inequality. So here's my conversation with Kem. When we look at algorithms, there have been a number of studies about algorithms and bias and you know, this thing that presents itself as uh, ostensibly neutral, ostensibly data-driven, actually end up reflecting very subjective biases that people themselves exhibit in everyday society. And so if you mm. could pick out one thing that you would say is the most significant trend in the growth in prevalence of algorithms in our daily lives, you know, my programs framed around unsettling trends. So what is the unsettling trend that algorithms and the presumption that algorithms are somehow objective or neutral can contribute to? From my perspective, and I think this has been written a lot about is that algorithms, if you think about the concept of echo chambers, Algorithms serve to really amplify and reinforce our positions. And what they do because of their ability to scale so fast, they take what we know from sort of the analogic world, because that's where, you know, the way algorithms are designed, they're designed from what they know. And so they create these and amplify these stereotypes in, in you know, algorithmic digital forms, which scale so fast. And so if I was to caution about one aspect about algorithm, it's the rate of scalability. And once an algorithm is actually part of a wider um, algorithmic network, you have this fundamental flaw in the system, right? And so um, if there is one lie in the system, then it impacts every other decision that is made within the system. So on that note, you know, I think we've we've recently seen debates around how how much transparency there should be around algorithms in terms of our social media companies and and how much of a role or responsibility social media companies have for what their algorithms are actually doing. So I'm wondering, you know, are algorithms doing more harm than good or are there places where algorithms are actually really beneficial to us? That's a really good question. So um, to the transparency of algorithm, let me just take that for a moment. So if you can imagine algorithms are sort of the new IP that many companies own and they see, they, they protect them vehemently. And this speaks to the firing of Dr. Timnit Gaburu at Google. And just most recently, another colleague of us was fired by basically acknowledging that the algorithms that were built are basically poison and that they need to be rebuilt from the base, right? And what this does effectively is that it, um, it disrupts Google's business model, right? They've invested so much in these algorithms. And so instead of retrofitting, whether it is discrimination against um, identifying a black face versus a white face, etc., what Google does is that it sort of patches its algorithmic models. And what these ethicists are asking for is a complete destruction of them and a retrading of them. Um, yes, yeah, so indeed, uh, companies do feel threatened uh, when, and of course, that's why the algorithms, algorithms are in a black box. We don't, they don't want us seeing you know, how things work. 
And so uh, there is this resistance definitely from industry to push back on anyone looking to um, examine and to interrogate these systems. And so that's where we are right now. We're at this event horizon. And I don't think we've settled upon necessarily all the nuanced issues associated with algorithms. But what we do know for sure at this point is that they're fundamentally, in some cases, biased. And we need to think about how we mitigate that so to that most of our life right now, especially post-COVID, in COVID, is being done online. That was my conversation with Kem Lauren Lubin, a PhD student at the University of Waterloo who studies computational rhetoric. Up next, we're going to dive into the topic of political polarization. Hello, my name is Danielle DeVoe, and you're listening to Midtown Radio. I am here with John Malloy, who is the director of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, and also the practitioner in residence in the Department of Political Science at Wilfrid Laurier University. John, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. So... Around the time that I was starting looking at unsettling trends, you were also working on your own podcast on, and the first series was on polarization. And so polarization, I think, is a quintessential unsettling trend. And and we've had a lot of evidence of of, um, um, the extent to which polarization is disrupting people's everyday lives and and sometimes in really violent ways. Uh, But it probably isn't new. I mean, people have had polarized views, uh, but but what what was it that you detected sort of in your everyday life in this moment that made you think, you know, there's something that needs to be investigated further? What attracted you to polarization in particular at this time? Well, I guess we're seeing two trends here in, in Canada. One is I guess the old-fashioned definition of, of polarization, people are finding themselves more and more on the extremes, and we saw that with the trucker convoy. We've seen that with, uh, you know, protests against statues and renaming of uh, universities, that sort of thing, where there are uh, voices which which are placing themselves firmly on the, on the left or the right. But there's a second trend uh, around polarization, which uh, sort of attracted me to the topic, and that is, uh, I guess, the the academic term is called uh, effective polarization. But to put it in in plain English, it's it's not just that uh, uh, I hold different views from someone else. It's that I don't respect that person because they hold different views. That I dismiss those views. That in a, well, I won't say in extreme cases. In many cases, I hate that person for holding different views. And although we have seen elements of this extreme polarization in Canada. Um, I I still think for the most part, many of us find ourselves in the middle ground. But what I find is really interesting is we're less and less uh, tolerant of those who may also be basically in the middle, but hold slightly different views. We uh, we're dismissive of them. We don't want to engage them. We don't want to admit that they might have a, a you know, a, a point to make. Uh, we just retreat to our little group and, uh, you know, want, want them all to go away. Uh, we talk about uh, you know, beating them at the ballot box, about silencing them, about making sure 
that uh, we do everything so that their views uh, are not heard, uh, that they in no way can prevail. And I find that really disturbing. And that's why I wanted to do the podcast series. And of course, you were uh, a member of provincial parliament as well for over a decade. And you, you know, have you just there, there is some uh, rhetorical question here, like the the rhetoric around people's political attitudes, really, in addition to polarization, there, you know, that we're seeing much more emotionality to it, much more, as you say, negativity, dismissiveness. Do you, do you see that as being new? Did you feel like that was something you experienced also in the early 2000s? Or um, have we gone to sort of more, has the rhetoric intensified? I, you know, I, I think the, the answer is we haven't, we haven't gone as far as maybe we think we, we do. I mean, when I was at, uh, at Queens Park and I also spent some time in, in, in Ottawa on the political side, not as an elected member, but working for, well, I worked for a series of cabinet ministers and ultimately the prime minister. And, you know, it was pretty shocking the degree of uh, partisanship and the, the name calling and the, and the mud, uh, sling so you know it's always been there and you know you you sometimes read commentators that'll go back a uh, hundred years 200 years even and show the level of uh, animosity between uh, political foes so it's always been there um so you know I, I think we we shouldn't panic but at the same time I think it has gotten worse it's it's the dismissive element it's the fact that that I don't sit down and and discuss why why you're wrong I just tell you you're wrong and I uh, uh, dismiss your views, or even worse, uh, I may tell you you're wrong, and suggest that you're a racist, or you're homophobic, or you know you're you're you know all sorts of wonderful terms that have come up to silence the other person, not to sit down and say, okay, here's my side of the story. Uh, what's your side of the story? I mean, I remember in undergrad when we had a, a controversial speaker coming to the university, we would all meet in the in the coffee shop to talk about tough questions that we were going to ask. I see on 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 you know campus at Laurier when there's a controversial speaker, they talk about how can we shut them down. And that's that really disturbs me. And I think you are seeing that in politics where instead of trying to argue the point or you know go after them on the on the facts of the situation or their perspective, you're finding ways to uh, to simply demonize them. And you know, I, I I don't think we you know the the elephant in the room is social media and the ease in which you can sort of create a campaign and and create a lot of noise around uh, uh, someone whose views you disagree with. And so, your response to these nagging feelings about polarization and the shutting down of debate uh, was to, in part, uh, start a podcast. You you launched the moment during the pandemic, and your first series was specifically dedicated to thinking about polarization. So, what were you hoping to achieve in terms of having this uh, space where you could talk to people about the issue of polarization? Well, I just I have to add that there's another piece to 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 the work that I do. I'm I'm at a, uh, a faith based institution. Uh, Martin Luther University College used to be Waterloo Lutheran Seminary. Uh, it's uh, 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 we call ourselves a L Lutheran host. I'm actually not Lutheran, but a Lutheran host to uh, uh, many many faith communities and to people of no faith who who consider themselves uh, spiritual or or have deep convictions that sort of thing. So. Through that lens, I, I I wanted to, and we talked to to a series of of experts. Some of them with with strong ties to faith communities, some of them without, but all of them I think open to a role that faith could play. And what I wanted to do was was discuss the state of polarization, what they thought, 
in terms of, of addressing it, but also look at it through this faith lens because um, people of faith, well, first of all, people of faith can can be fueling the fire of polarization. I, I certainly uh, admit that. And, uh, you know, we that's part of the question that we have to address is, you know, is it making it worse or better? But I also think there's aspects of faith which can help build bridges. Um, a person who's following a particular faith tradition, and you know, as I say, we're the, the Lutheran tradition where I teach in a in a Christian studies program, things like that. People who are who are following a, a particular faith tradition, you can disagree with people, you can uh, uh, certainly argue points and feel very passionate about them. But at the end of the day, there's a call to see that other person as a person, as a fellow human as uh, uh, you know, someone to be loved, uh, the idea of the image of God in the other. And we often use that uh, appropriately and very powerfully when you talk about you know, the homeless person, when you talk about uh, the outcast, the oppressed person, and we're certainly called to see uh, uh, you know, uh, them as part of God's creation. But guess what? You also have to see that trucker uh, on the evening news who's taken over uh, Parliament Hill as as part of God's creation. You have to see that person whose views are so out there, they're driving you absolutely uh, mad as part of God's creation. And you have to find a way to to work with them and and to pull them together. Now, obviously, there are, you know, uh, there are limitations. There are, there, there, there are people who are who are spouting things which are just plain evil, which just, you know, I'm not talking about, uh, uh, you know, someone who's who's screaming racist uh, uh, slurs at, at the top of their voice, that sort of thing. I'm just talking about the cut and thrust of debate in Canada today and how it does involve such a wide range. And, and the question I wanted to ask is, could uh, people of faith who, who can't just dismiss huge swaths of people, who can't dismiss anyone, uh, do they have a role to play? And so the guests that we put together, some of them were very involved in, in faith activities. Some of them were were more on the periphery, but all of them had a chance to, to speak about it. And so what were some of the memorable moments from your your first series in, ter- series in terms of your conversations and your guests? Are there any that stood out to you? Well, I think uh, uh, yeah, we 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 had a we had a good cross section. We we had a number of guests who I think you would describe as as middle of the road, who were very much about the the need for dialogue, the need for listening. There was a lot of emphasis placed on not being confrontational. There there there's a view. I mean, someone was sharing with me uh, the other day a, a guest speaker they had heard actually from the medical community saying that the the role of the medical community should be to go out and um, uh, express all the facts, to basically beat people over the head with the facts when it comes, sorry, I should give the context, when it comes to COVID-19, the role of the medical community is to beat everyone over the head with the facts. Now, they didn't use those words, but they basically said, we need to tell everyone the facts, and then everyone will listen, and then all will be well when it comes to some of the uh, uh, the problems that we're facing over, over COVID measures. And of course, you know, I thought back to the podcast where so many of the speakers said that's exactly the wrong thing to do. And that doesn't mean you abandon the facts, but to go in and start screaming, I'm right, you're wrong, you don't know what you're talking about. All it does is uh, is build walls. You, you need to find areas of, of common interest. You need to be able to hear what the other side's saying, to listen to them. And even if what they're, they're spouting is, is factually incorrect, What's behind it? What is it about their experience and their worldview that's causing them to oftentimes to be scared, to be suspicious? You know, are there are there truths 
behind the mistruth how's that for a sentence that you can uh, uh you know you can identify with is is there you know can you also acknowledge um that oftentimes you know some of what they're saying is 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 justified i mean the government the level of government interference in our lives throughout COVID is is a reality and i mean some of us including myself who's you know i'd, I'd go for a vaccine a week if i could um you know we we fail to acknowledge it we fail to say okay you know that 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 person with the uh, with the uh, you know on TV with the truck or the trucker or whatever that person is scared and that person is seeing a level of interference which which we've never seen before. So you have to sort of recognize that and find some common ground to to move forward. The other thing you asked me about about memorable moments. I mean, one of the most interesting. Uh, they were all interesting. I love all my guests equally, like my children. But one of the most interesting ones we had was uh, my final one with Fannis Juma, who's the um, uh, was one of the founders of Black Lives Matter uh, here in Waterloo Region. And you know, we had a we had a good chat about uh, issues around power, around dialogue, and that you know we often speak about about dialogue as as being almost uh, uh, on an equal playing field. You know. You're going to state your views. I'm going to listen. Uh, uh, you know this sort of thing. And for uh, many people at the margins, um, you know this call for civility, this call for dialogue, this call for uh, you know we should we should just all take a deep breath and step back and all that is actually can be seen as as a tool to to oppress people, a tool to to quiet people. There are voices out there that are saying things that are very unsettling, and instead of us acknowledging that and uh, uh you know delving into some of the nasty truths about our society our reaction is oh let's all settle down let's all be civil to each other and it was it was interesting to hear her perspective and to hear her perspective on some of the voices that are quick to come out uh you know in the context of black lives matter and challenge all their statistics and challenge uh some of the positions they're taking and and try in a sense through you know this this kind of nice uh, uh, civility. You know, I mean, let's all have a dispassionate conversation to quiet people down. And I I I, I really appreciated uh, uh, her perspective on that. Very different perspective from some of the other guests. Well, and what I think is interesting right now is some of those rhetorical strategies are um, also being appropriated by potentially individuals who aren't necessarily marginalized, but the rhetoric of marginalization is being exploited. So if we think about um, Donald Trump saying something like, you know, this is the worst witch hunt in history, you know, well, the real witch hunt was actually quite terrible. Um, I think probably, um, you know, more significant than any kind of media scrutiny that uh, a president uh, has received in recent history. And so I, you know, there's to a certain extent, um and 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 this there I, I remember there were articles about this early in the Trump presidency where people would say well the left kind of had this coming you know the questioning uh dominant uh knowledge systems and and sort of being able to say that you know that 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 history or that truth is not is is not necessarily accurate for us and being able to disrupt those discourses and also even you know if we think about vaccine hesitancy uh, the rhetoric around science and the truth. Well, now there are um, sort of anti-vaccine influencers who talk about the peer-reviewed research that supports their perspective. And so, or, or you know, dominant 
dominant groups using rhetorics of being marginalized, that somehow they're being um, excluded from public discourse, they're being uh, excluded from the media. And so there's kind of, um, you know, and that's, I think, an appropriation of, of, of language that a group like Black Lives Matter rightly has to use to say that um, our voices are being silenced. And so in part in this political polarization moment, I think there are um, there there are groups that are also appropriating opportunities to uh, um, draw on uh, some of those rhetorical strategies as well. And so I don't know, um, you know, is is something more complicated than just um, us saying, well, we don't want to listen to the truckers because that we don't we don't we don't believe what they have to say. Um, is there something more nefarious going on in sort of the backgrounds of of these sort of power plays? Well, it may be nefarious. I don't know. Nefarious is an interesting word. I mean, to be very honest with you, I think we we talk so much, and I don't know what the word is. I'm going to use the word process, but it's it's funny. We we talk about process, and we never talk about substance. Um, you know, we we fail to kind of put our cards on the table and and express what we're concerned about, and have uh, the other people respond. I mean, I I remember. Uh, just to just to you know, I don't know if I'm going for a trifecta here, but I'll I'll bring up a very controversial issue. I mean, I remember the outcry when uh, uh, the Supreme Court decision in the United States came down around abortion, and you know, we had people writing op-eds saying this is ridiculous. I cannot believe that we're even discussing this issue. It's a settled issue. Um, and all I kept thinking is, no, whether women should get the vote is a settled issue. Uh, abortion is a settled issue. It doesn't matter if you are the most passionate pro-choice person on earth who believes it with all their soul. It's not a settled issue. So instead of writing an op-ed about whether it's a settled issue or not, why don't you write an op-ed that expresses your arguments? And now I'm really going to shock the world. Acknowledges anything from the other side where you think they're, they they may have a bit of a point on, on either side of the issue. Um, because in most cases... Uh, sure. You know, and, you know, you, as I always say to my students, you can bring up, you know, the KKK or neo-Nazis or whatever, but putting those aside, in most cases, in most of these very passionate debates, you can actually look at the other side and say, yeah, there there may be one or two things that that I perhaps disagree with, but I understand where they're coming from. So let me explain my perspective. Let me acknowledge uh, that uh, I understand, uh, you know, some of what you're bringing forward in terms of a perspective, and let's have a debate and discussion. I mean, the problem with that is, first of all, it's it's complicated. Second of all, you actually, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say you actually have to understand your issue. I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm turning into a teacher here, but I have students who argue passionately about things that when you you press them on it, they don't really have have the facts or the background to back it up. But you have to understand your issue. And the third thing, and now I'm being a little flip, it's not that fun. It's not that fun to go out and have to walk through uh, uh, the arguments that you're making and to acknowledge where the other side is coming from and to uh, 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 somehow, you know, present a package that that you're you're looking for uh, uh, your audience, whatever that is, to to take your side or or to at least uh, uh, you know take part of your side. I mean, that's. That's a lot of work, and and it's not as much fun as as labeling people as uh, uh, saying I'm a victim, as uh, you know, employing some of the things that Donald Trump does. I mean, what's amazing is that we can have huge debates on issues, and we never discuss the substance. I mean, I find that uh, uh, 
really puzzling that that you can just go on and on and on and you're a racist and I'm not a racist and you're the racist and blah blah. But we never discuss what 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 the actual uh, issue is. I mean, there was and I can't remember if this came up in the in the podcast, but I heard recently. Um, what was it? The the Turing test where you uh, you know you have a computer and you you can't tell the difference whether it's a computer is a, a human being or not and this is sort of the, the the next stage and they talked about an ideological one where your 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 task is to write or you know put together a presentation by someone on the other side and and present it in a way that if a, if a neutral party heard it would actually think you believed it so in other words you have to understand where the other person is coming from to such a degree that uh, uh, you could even convince people that's the point where we need to start having having discussions because if if you don't understand the other side if you don't acknowledge some of the points they're making might have uh, might be valid you might actually be forced to agree with um i don't know how we can have a discussion it just becomes this and you know maybe process isn't the right word but but, but that's all that happens is the back and forth yeah well and and part of the catalyst for uh thinking about unsettling trends was this issue of knowledge and information and how people think about information. You know, we're in an environment where, in theory, every question we have that we want answered, we can simply type into a search engine the complete question, and we actually get a direct answer back, whether or not it's the correct answer or the best answer, um, but but we get an answer. And so, and I see this in, in students in my classrooms, they're being strategic about what they write down and what they don't, because if they don't have to memorize it, they know that they don't have to memorize it, they can just always look it up later, then they don't need to write it down. They don't need to know it, because information is out there, and they can kind of grab it when they want. Pair that with an, a, an information environment, a, a, a digital information environment, primarily driven by social media, where people are, um, you know, forming entire worldviews based upon headlines, uh, clickbait headlines that they don't actually read into. And then the articles themselves don't actually, as you say, have much substance anyway. So we have both like too much information, information overload, and a complete absence of information in terms of, of the things that we're sharing as if they are information, which are really just um, value position statements. Um, or um, other kinds of um, sort of uh, uh, positioning that we're trying to, trying to make uh, publicly in within our echo chambers or within our networks. And so, you know, what is the the way back? Because we can't we can we really expect everyone in Canada to be consistently sitting down in person with other people and having these conversations, you know, when we're mostly connected through digital means, and most of those means are inadequate for the task. Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it, it's really complicated. If I had the answer, I'd be, uh, you know, I'd be promoting that that best selling book on this on this podcast of how we're going to solve all these problems. I mean, part of it is uh, the change of attitude and the change of approach and and not beating each other o over the head of of respecting each other i think respect is 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 a real problem that we have uh, uh in this in this country i mean you know we talk about populism where where you know you sort of create this mythical ordinary person who should uh who's constantly being told by leaders they should be suspicious of the elite we never talk about the reverse kind of populism where you do have elites in in this country who i don't think 
believe that uh, uh, you know the 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 common everyday person is 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 necessarily that virtuous, and uh, you know they, they 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 have very little use for people who don't who don't uh, agree with them. So part of it is is changes of attitudes of being a little bit more accepting of of listening to each other. I think there's other changes that can be done. Um, you know, it, it's funny, a, a colleague of mine, you know, I've talked about how I work in the, the sort of the, the the world of faith and we talking about interfaith. Um, and I've heard this from a number of people, you know, interfaith gatherings where the, the, the imam and the rabbi and the priest and, you know, they all go and they have a panel discussion and all that. And, and one of my colleagues always says, well, we're going to have an interfaith dialogue. What are we going to talk about? And instead of talking about um, things, what about doing things together? And I mean that quite seriously. We have so many problems and challenges uh, facing our nation. And I think the ability for us to to come together, and I mean this in a meaningful way. I mean, you know, we, again, another friend and I, we always laugh when people say we need a national conversation. Well, we're all going to go sit in coffee houses or something and have, you know, so I'm not talking about this, you know, we need to work hard on it. I'm talking about actually looking around at uh, uh, our community, for example, uh, the homelessness problem, the number of agencies and groups and organizations that are working with them. What about coming together to try to deal with, with homelessness? What about trying to come together to, dry, to try to deal with issues around uh, uh, climate change? Um, you know, opportunities for us to work with with Indigenous neighbors, that sort of thing, which which actually we're, we're doing something. And it, when you talk to people who have been involved with interfaith efforts, for example, you know, in Toronto, there was a very a number of high profile instances where where, um, you know, Muslim communities and Jewish communities came together to welcome a Syrian refugee family. Um, that builds bridges uh, that that you're not going to build by by you know sponsoring a, a, a debate on some issue. Uh, that builds understanding. That's uh, people coming around a, a common purpose. And I think part of what's missing in our country, and is certainly missing from our <clears throat> political discourse, is the idea of of uh, a common cause of um, you know calling on all of us to come together and uh, uh, work towards something. You know, the, the most hackneyed quote in politics is ask not what you can do for your country, or ask not, what is it? Ask ask not what your country can do for you, but what you do for your country. And the reason why why it still exists, I think, is because deep down we know there's 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 something meaningful about that, that that if we have political leaders that were calling on us in in a in a very meaningful way to come together for uh, community projects, provincial projects, or national projects, I think it will it would start to 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 build some of those bridges. But instead, I think our political leaders are trying to divide us, and they're doing it for very obvious reasons. Because that's how you win elections: you slice and dice the voters till you can get the numbers right, and you create some wedge issues, and you create a sense, you know, go back to what I said right at the beginning, that we're right and the other side is wrong and the other side's really wrong. So you have to stick with uh, uh, our side to move forward. So to move beyond that and to and to look at some some national projects and national ways of coming together, I think would help. But, uh, you know, we had lots of good uh, uh, discussion with the six podcasts, but I, I, I don't think any of my guests would be offended if I said no one had the uh, the magic answer that was going to solve everything. But a man of faith, you must have hope. So is there anything that you're seeing in terms of uh, 
political discourse and, and people trying to address polarization that is at least making you a little hopeful that we're starting to, to move in the right direction? I mean, I, I think uh, there, that sometimes we exaggerate the noise that's out there. Uh, I, 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 I do, you know, I was involved in the municipal election door knocking. I haven't done that in years. And it is, there is something refreshing about just meeting ordinary people who have ordinary concerns. And, um, you know, I, I, I have to believe in the wisdom of the crowds. The crowds uh, elected me three times. So I guess I must believe in their wisdom, but I, I do hope that there is, uh, uh, a little bit of a, a pushback and I don't mean an ideological pushback, but a pushback from ordinary Canadians sort of saying, hey, look, we've got to we've got to live our lives. We have some problems we need. And uh, uh, I'm trying not to use the word common sense. It has such political ramifications, but I don't mean it in that sense. But, you know, we need some some very straightforward ways to 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 address it. And I'm hoping because I always say uh, politicians are very simple animals. Uh, they, they they do what they're, they do, what they're told. And if people are demanding a little bit more in terms of uh, uh, cooperation and to tone down the rhetoric, uh, they will respond. So, you know, there's there's some hope there. Uh, I certainly am concerned about the role of social media and technology. Uh, and I, I I do think that has to be a, a discussion that we have. It, it is a political problem, um, the way that, that uh, uh, it dominates our lives. And by that, I'm not simply speaking about uh you know controlling content and that sort of thing but just the fact that uh, uh as a society we've we've become addicted to uh, our phones uh, i've had students say uh, very very bluntly that phone is part of their identity so i think i think we have to start thinking about that uh, uh as a world but i do think there is some some wisdom out there that's saying come on folks we've we've got to lower the temperature and uh, and and try to work together and hopefully that's going to prevail Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. That was my conversation with John Malloy, the director of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College and practitioner in residence in the Department of Political Science at Wilfrid Laurier University. If you're interested in catching John Malloy's podcast, The Moment, uh, and in particular, his first season on polarization, you can go to midtownradio.ca to our on-demand catalog, and you can download all six episodes for your listening pleasure. And you can look forward to John's next podcast on listening coming sometime in the next year. Thank you so much for listening to my series on unsettling trends. Today was all about polarization and some of the ways that it is an unsettling trend, but also some of the hopeful ways that we can try to engage in real meaningful dialogue with our neighbors and try to come to better understandings of one another's positions. Sometimes this needs to take place outside of virtual environments, but there's also some hope that we can engage with algorithms to make some of those virtual environments better. You can be in touch with me on Twitter as long as it still exists at Pop Culture Lab, or you can reach out to Midtown Radio at Midtown Radio KW on Instagram and Twitter and Midtown Radio KW at gmail.com. Mm -hmm.